Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. This is episode eight of the podcast, and the other day I was watching some boxing on TV and decided to devote this episode to a very interesting story of a boxing match surrounded by controversy involving secret locations, international borders, and, of course, the Texas Rangers. It could have only happened in Texas. So let's go back to 1896 and get wise about Texas. Now, boxing seems to have declined in popularity in recent years, but in the late 1800s, boxing, or as it was called then, prize fighting, was extremely popular. Up until the late 1800s, the fights were conducted under what were commonly called the London Rules, which allowed for a bit of wrestling in addition to punching, and a round didn't end until someone was knocked down. There were no limits to the number of rounds. Most of the fights occurred without even wearing boxing gloves. It was a rough game back then. In 1889, the Marquise of Queensbury rules came to be used in the United States. Now, these rules were actually written in the 1860s, and they more closely resemble today's boxing rules, including the use of gloves. Thank goodness. Now, let me set the stage for the fight we're going to discuss today. One of the greatest champions of the 1800s was John L. Sullivan. Sullivan was a Bostonian recognized as the champion fighter from 1882 to 1892. He was the last champion under the London rules and the first champion under the Queensbury rules. In 1892, Sullivan defended his title against a young fighter from San Francisco named Gentleman Jim Corbett. Or Corbett. That fight lasted 21 rounds. Now, boxing is a tough sport. I don't know how those guys went 21 rounds. But in the 21st round, Corbett landed a left that knocked Sullivan out. So Corbett was crowned the heavyweight champion. After winning the championship, Corbett was more interested in his celebrity. He used his title to make money in boxing exhibitions and on stage rather than defending the title. Now, that on-stage part may sound a little funny, but back then, as the boxing champion, Corbett would put on one-man shows talking about his life or doing a boxing exhibition on stage. In fact, he only defended his actual heavyweight title one time in 1894. So enter Bob Fitzsimmons. Fitzsimmons was from Cornwall, England, and began his professional career in Australia. He won the U.S. middleweight title and then began a heavyweight career. He was widely regarded as a great up-and-coming heavyweight, and promoters were trying to make a Corbett-Fitzsimmons fight happen. Now, Fitzsimmons had previously challenged Corbett, who refused to fight him and actually insulted him repeatedly in the press as being, you know, not in Corbett's class, not good enough to face him, that sort of thing. There was no love loss between the two because Fitzsimmons didn't take too kindly to that criticism. In fact, in late 1894, a boxing organization called the Olympic Club actually declared Fitzsimmons the heavyweight champion because Corbett had refused to fight him. Well, that worked. That got Corbett fired up since his stage livelihood and boxing exhibitions were being threatened. Now enter Dan Stewart. Dan Stewart was what you would charitably call a sporting man. He was a gambler. He hung out at the Coney Island Turf Exchange in Dallas and lived right near there in Dallas. He's described as a modest man, but he thought big. He decided to bring the Corbett Fitzsimmons fight to Dallas. Without even a contract for the fight having been signed, he already arranged for special railroad rates so fans could easily attend the fight. He started plans for a 52,000-seat arena, that's 52,000 seats, to be called the Dallas Coliseum. He got together several Dallas businessmen and raised $41,000 for the purse. 
he planned a huge boxing festival to run for two weeks with the big championship fight being the center of the whole thing. In fact, the actual Prince of Wales, which at that time was Prince Albert, who would go on to become King George V, was going to come, as was the real Marquis of Queensbury. They were going to attend in person, so everything was proceeding nicely. But that was not to last. First off, the Dallas Pastors Association had a special meeting to condemn the proposed fight. They feared that a boxing match would concentrate, as they put it, quote, gamblers, thieves, pickpockets, thugs, and harlots, close quote. They called on the Texas governor, who was then Charles Culbertson, to stop the boxing match. And there were many other so-called indignation meetings that were held, but Governor Culbertson remained silent. And there were a couple of other distractions. Corbett, the fight, one of the fighters, was a serial philanderer who was going through a very contentious and very public divorce. Fitzsimmons himself was about to stand trial for manslaughter. Now, what did he do? He actually killed his sparring partner the year before, and he killed him with an uppercut. He was putting on a boxing exhibition in Syracuse, New York. He hit his poor sparring partner with an uppercut, knocked him to the floor, proceeded with the exhibition against another person as the poor guy just laid on the stage. They dragged the guy off, and he later died from that punch. So Fitzsimmons was not to be taken lightly. Now, the law in Texas at this time was unclear. Many people thought that prize fighting was prohibited, but others thought that it could happen if Stewart paid for a license. So Stewart went to the Dallas County clerk, and he dutifully paid for a license. The pastors immediately sprung into action and tried to convince the authorities to stop the fight at all costs. The city's leading businessmen, however, met to make sure that the fight, and of course the money that it would bring to Dallas, continued. The material for Stewart's new stadium was coming in 10 truckloads at, at a time, and work actually began on that Dallas 52,000-seat arena. Betting on the fight had already begun around the country. Now, ministers' groups around the state were besieging the governor's office to get Culberson to stop the fight. Culberson finally issued a proclamation that the fight was illegal under Texas law and urged the police to prevent the fight from occurring despite what he acknowledged as and called a, quote, temporary economic benefit, close quote, that Dallas might enjoy. Well, let me tell you, the gate receipts for that fight would have been $1.2 million. Now, this is in 1896. So $1.2 million back then is about $35 million today, not to mention the other economic impacts. So it's no wonder that one of the biggest supporters of the fight was the mayor of Dallas. Uh, It was a big deal. Well, Culbertson finally decided that he had to stop it. So he called the legislature of Texas into a special session in October 1895 specifically to stop this fight from occurring. They passed a law making prize fighting a felony, and that was that. Or was it? Holding the fight in other states was discussed, but none of the states were very receptive to the idea. Stewart had his sights set on El Paso which caused the state of Arizona to deploy its National Guard in case Stewart looked a little further west. New Mexico decided they were supporting the Texas government's position, so they weren't going to allow it to happen. Well, Stewart had bigger problems. Right in the middle of all this, Corbett quit. He quit boxing. He thought the fight was never going to happen, so he went ahead and vacated the title to an unknown Irishman named Peter Maher. 
Fitzsimmons was, of course, mad, but he immediately challenged Maher. So it looked like Stewart was going to have his fight after all. The citizens of El Paso, in the meantime, had raised $15,000 with the idea that the fight would be held perhaps in Juarez, Mexico, right across the border from El Paso. So everything moved toward the west. Fitzsimmons arrived in El Paso to train. Meyer was training in Las Cruces, New Mexico, but it still wasn't clear what was going to happen. Mexico decided that the fight would not happen in Juarez, and they sent 150 soldiers to Juarez to make sure it didn't happen. The U.S. Marshals arrived in El Paso to make sure the fight didn't happen on U.S. soil, and so did 32 Texas Rangers. Stewart, by this time, had arrived in El Paso. The Rangers tailed Stewart, they tailed the fighters, and the fighters' entourage. Stewart was very pleasant to the Rangers, insisting that the fight would never occur on Texas soil, which, of course, made the Rangers all the more suspicious. Um, incidentally, let me tell you a little side story. We've all heard the phrase, one riot, one ranger. Texans use that phrase all the time. Well, that phrase reportedly came to be during the course of this prize fight controversy. When Stewart was still trying to have the fight in Dallas, the governor sent ranger captain Bill McDonald, who was one of the toughest ranger captains ever, sent him up to Dallas to put a stop to the fight. And when he got off the train, someone looked around and asked him where the other rangers were. And he's reported to have said, quote, hell ain't I enough. There's only one prize fight, close quote. Captain McDonald lived by this creed. He said, quote, no man in the wrong can stand up against a fellow that's in the right and keeps on a coming, close quote. So always remember that. Stewart now is still looking for a location for the fight, but now everybody's in El Paso. So Mexico has soldiers on the border to prevent it. Arizona has soldiers on its border. New Mexico's cooperating with Texas, and into this big mess steps the law west of the Pecos, the famous or infamous Judge Roy Bean. Judge Roy Bean was the justice of the peace in Langtree, Texas, on the Rio Grande River. He did things his way, to say the least. He made his decisions, held his trials without the inconvenience of a jury, or often without even looking at the law. One time, someone accused someone was accused of killing a Chinese man in his saloon. So Bean broke out the law book, and he said, I find no law against killing a Chinese man in my saloon. So he discharged the man that was accused of the crime. Another time, this is a great one, another time a man fell from the Pecos River Bridge near Langtree and died. And upon searching the man, Judge Bean found a pistol and $41. So he fined the dead man $41 for carrying a pistol collected the fine, and seized the pistol as evidence. Now, Bean had an entrepreneurial mind, to say the least. He also had a train depot by his saloon, and he also made sure he had a fresh shipment of beer that he could sell to the spectators of this fight. He cabled Dan Stewart and said that he would guarantee protection if the fight were held in Langtree. So what Roy Bean did was he found a sandbar in the middle of the Rio Grande River nearer to the Mexican side of the river, and he set up a boxing ring on the sandbar in the middle of the river. He put up a canvas wall around the ring so non-paying customers wouldn't sneak a peek. Tickets were $20 a piece, which is about $500 today, and he sold his beer for a dollar a bottle, which would be about $25 today. So sounds like maybe a typical professional sporting event. Meanwhile, in El Paso, Stewart had to keep the location of the fight a secret from everyone. 
so he arranged for a special train to travel to Langtree for the fight. Tickets on the train were 12 bucks, which is about $300 now, but that was the only way you were going to get there. Over 300 people showed up at the Southern Pacific Depot at the appointed time, having no idea where they were actually going. Some thought they might be going to Galveston. Some speculated they were going back to Dallas. Ten extra cars had to be added to that train. And in addition to the fighters and their entourage, all the Rangers got on the train too. Now also on the train was a reporter for the New York Morning Telegraph by the name of William Barclay Masterson better known by his nickname, Bat. Bat Masterson was a very famous lawman and gunfighter in Dodge City. He even dealt Pharaoh with Wyatt Earp and Luke Short for a time in Tombstone, Arizona, but managed to get out of there before the famous OK Corral gun battle. He later tried his hand at journalism and was well known as a sports writer. He got to know Captain McDonald on that train ride to Langtree, but not exactly how he expected. Here's what happened. The train stopped at Sanderson for lunch. Now, there was a Chinese waiter waiting on Masterson and his entourage, and the waiter made some sort of mistake, which really infuriated Masterson. So the legendary gunfighter grabbed a heavy table caster and raised up his arm to strike down the waiter. Well, McDonald grabbed Masterson's arm and yelled at him, Don't you strike that man. Masterson challenged McDonald, reportedly yelling back, Well, maybe you'd like to take it up. To which McDonald coolly replied, I done took it up. So after a few tense moments, Masterson wisely broke into a grin, put his caster down, and quietly ate the rest of his lunch. You do not mess with the Texas Rangers. Always remember that. So the train arrived in Langtree and the crowd proceeded toward the river and out onto the sandbar arena. Enterprising spectators climbed the cliffs of the Rio Grande to get a little bit cheaper view. The Rangers, of course, had to remain on the Texas side of the river. That was the end of their jurisdiction, so they couldn't do anything about it. And after all the hoopla, the controversy, the governor, the Rangers, the Mexican army, the Dallas pastors, a secret train, and everything, we were finally ready for a championship fight. The bell rang to start the fight, and 95 seconds later, it was all over. Just like about every time I've ordered an expensive pay-per-view boxing match, the fight ended in a minute and a half. Maher rushed Fitzsimmons, who wrapped him up. Fitzsimmons hit him with a left hand to the jaw, and Maher apparently was stunned. He chased Maher back across the ring as Maher retreated and landed a few more punches before he landed what was described as a crushing right uppercut to the jaw that crumpled the champion Maher. 95 seconds and Fitzsimmons was the new champion. Now, one funny story about this fight. Um, there was a man who traveled all the way from New York for this boxing match, and when the fight was about to start, he took a cigar out of his pocket, and he turned around to the man behind him to get a light for a cigar. After he got it lit, he turned it back, only to discover the fight had ended. So after all the expense and trouble of a trip across North America, he never saw the actual fight. Another funny story is that the fight was supposed to be recorded by a new movie camera that was called a kinetoscope, but the operators couldn't even get it going before the fight was over. Now, after Fitzsimmons won the championship, his old rival Corbett popped his head back up and decided to come out of retirement. Corbett and Fitzsimmons eventually fought on St. Patrick's Day in 1897, the following year, 
in Carson City, Nevada. Corbett knocked Fitzsimmons down at one point, but Fitzsimmons came back and uh, leveled Corbett with a punch after an hour and a half of fighting. And uh, for you movie buffs out there listening, the Corbett-Fitzsimmons fight was actually filmed, and it was released as a movie, and it was 100 minutes long, and that's considered the first feature-length film ever released. Well, when Texans want a contest, they're going to find a way to get it. And that's still true. Although conducting boxing matches has gotten considerably easier than it was in the 1800s. Now we come to the part of the show called Getting There, where I tell you how to go see some of the places mentioned. Um, One that unfortunately you can't see anymore, but you can go by the spot, was Dan Stewart's Hangout in Dallas. It was originally called the Coney Island Jockey Saloon and Restaurant, which I think is one of the best names for a bar and restaurant I've ever heard. Later, it was called the Coney Island Turf Exchange. It was located at 216 Main Street in Dallas. Now, that's now a busy collection of merging roads and freeways just west of Dealey Plaza, but that's where the Coney Island Jockey Saloon and Restaurant was. Langtree, Texas is still there. It's located off of Highway 90 on Loop 25 in Valverde County. And, of course, they have a Judge Roy Bean Visitor Center and a replica of Bean Saloon, which was called the Jersey Lily. Now, the restaurant in Sanderson where Captain Bill McDonald made Wild West legend Bat Masterson mind his manners was called the Beanery, and it was located in the old Sanderson Railroad Depot. Unfortunately, despite a valiant effort to preserve the depot, it was demolished in 2012. Now, the Amtrak Sunset Limited still stops in Sanderson, but there's only a platform there now. Well, Captain Bill McDonald went on to have a very interesting law enforcement career, which we will definitely cover in a future episode. He died in 1918, and he's buried in the cemetery in Quanah, Texas, which is on Highway 287 between Vernon and Childress in the northern part of the state. So you can see him there. Now, I want to mention one more thing. There was one thing I discovered while researching this episode is that another legendary Old West gunfighter was involved in a controversial boxing match, and the boxing match also involved Bob Fitzsimmons. In fact, it was Fitzsimmons' next fight after the fight on the sandbar in the Rio Grande. So I'm going to do a bonus episode on that, and you can look for that in about a week. Well, that wraps it up for Episode 8 of Wise About Texas. Please like and share the Wise About Texas page on Facebook and follow the show on Twitter at Wise About Texas. Be sure and send me your suggestions for Texas history you'd like to know more about, and we'll do an episode for you. Until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.